the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 628 for Sunday, October 23rd, 2016. <laughs> And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in questions, tips, and yes, cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share your tips, we share your cool stuff found, with the goal being to learn at least four new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Power Photos from Fat Cat Software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 20%. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And also Harry's at harrys.com, where coupon code MGG gets you a free post-shave balm with your free trial new offer that's available to most Harry's customers, even if you've got stuff, gotten stuff from them before. So we'll talk about that shortly here, too. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here back... In fearful Connecticut, John F. Braun. Welcome back, John. It's great to have you. Yeah. Yeah, I was on the road. I was in Manhattan for a few days. Sweet. Uh, went to a Synology event. That was very nice. Cool. Went to the uh, Photo Plus Expo. That was, uh, that was fun. Um, and I may share some of the things I learned. If, if you're nice to me. Cool. Well, let's do it. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's do some cool stuff no, down here. We've, we've got I'm some. I'm going to share. Yeah, we've got some in the queue. So uh, we'll start with Will from, uh, from the chat room. And he found a great little article about how to keep Safari from opening iTunes automatically when you open App Store pages. And, uh, and you know, that's kind of an annoying thing. So it's, uh, it's an extension for Safari called No More iTunes. And that... Uh, basically takes care of it. It keeps that from happening. And uh, so thank you for that very much, Will. Good, uh, good stuff. Because sometimes that's annoying when you're in the middle of Safari, especially if you're opening a bunch of things in tabs and one of them happens to be an app store item. And then suddenly, you know, iTunes is launching forward. So very, very cool stuff. Will. I appreciate you sending that in. It's also will run for fun in uh, in the chat room. And he says, ah, it's Andy will run for fun is simply his uh, passion. So there you go. Thank you, Andy. Good, good stuff. And I'll even change that in the uh, in the notes. Yeah. Uh, what's this chat room you speak of? MacGeekGab.com slash stream, John. Hello to ah. everyone that's there for, with us this morning. Listener Mark shares uh, a great little thing that uh, that is near and dear to our hearts. He said. Micromat has come out with a new USB circuit tester called the USB USB EE is what that's uh, what that's called. And it will test your USB power consumption and uh, and all kinds of other cool things. It's available at micromat.com. And uh, I'd love to compare this to some of the, the, you know, kind of the off brand $10 ones in Amazon. This one's about 30 bucks. But uh, but it shows voltage, current, uh, high and low voltage warning, a discharge capacity, memory slot, and it's got a little button on it. So very, very cool. 
thanks for uh, thanks for sending that in. This is what we like. Cool stuff found. Zach sends in. Let me find Zach's note here. Why can't I find it? Oh, I know why. Uh, it's called the Classic Mac Sticker Pack, and it's an iOS 10 messages sticker pack that has all the classic Mac icons. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they got away with putting this in the app store, but, uh, but Hey, cool on them. I've had it for a little while, actually. And it's, it's fun. I think I sent you some, some classic Mac stickers like the, you know, the little happy Mac uh, and sad Mac and all that good stuff. So it's fun. Yeah. There was another sticker pack you were using quite a bit of, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, John. <laughs> There are lots of fun sticker packs, John, and uh, and there's nothing wrong with with <laughs> enjoying the use of all of them in appropriate venues. True, right? So, uh, yeah, sure. All right, uh, moving along. Let's see what do we have here, John? What do you you got? Uh, you saw a couple things this week, so or a couple things recently, not necessarily this uh, week. Recently, yes. Yeah. So a um, few things here. One, I thought I'd mention this, so I had this and hadn't tried it. The reason I tried it, Dave, so as you, as you may recall, uh, there was another device I talked about, I think in the last Cool Stuff Found, called uh, Tile. Tile makes this uh, small uh, Bluetooth-based tracker, and uh, this is a, a competitor. The only uh, downside of the Tile that I would say, so there's an upside in that I believe it's waterproof. The downside is that you can't replace the battery. That's mm. kind of bad. Mine just started telling me I'm going to die. And they give you a, a way to, you know, replace it at a discount. Sure. Uh, sure. Which is nice. Right. So it's neither good nor bad. It's just what their product does. Um, but then I had one of these kicking around, which is a newer design, uh, the Tracker Bravo. So this is a newer design. Uh, I believe the older one was plastic. This one is actually uh, metal in case that you can get in different colors. Um, and the features that it offers you is um, uh, the distance to the device. So you, so you pair it with your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can, you, it'll give you a relative distance, like am I getting closer or farther? Um, you can ring the device, the tracker device from your phone. You can also ring your phone from the tracker device. So that's kind of neat. Oh, cool. Um, there's a separation alert feature. So if whatever you're whatever devices are bonded, if they get too far away from each other, they'll, they'll both, I think, start yelling at you. Sure. Which, uh, you may want, you know, so you don't lose your phone or your tracker. And then they also have a feature, which I think they, they kind of leapfrog the other guys, called Crowd GPS. So the thing is, if there's any, if you say, I want to find my device and you don't happen to be in range, as long as someone else who is running the app is within range, it'll tell you. Cool. There you go. And that is a single unit is $29.99 and that they have uh, various sorts of deals. Cool. All right. What else you got? Uh, What's the next one on my list here? Let me on our list. All right. Um, Ah, okay. So uh, I had a prototype of this and I think I showed it to you, Dave. It was just a charger. So it was a very portable thin charger which I thought was kind of neat. This is the final realization of that product though, Dave, and it's called the Thinium Recharge Plus. And it kind of does everything. Um, so what it is, is it's a charger. So it, you can charge your devices with it. Okay. It also has a 3000 milliamp hour battery. Uh, the cool thing is that it has plugs that you can plug into the wall. 
Or if you want to, you can charge it via USB. Oh, nice. And then outgoing, it has, um, it kind of pops up is a lightning charge port and also a USB charge port. Huh. That's why I kind of say, so it does everything. So you can charge it using multiple ways and it'll charge other things using multiple connectors. So that's pretty neat. Um, and it's pretty much about the size of an iPhone. So it's a you know nice form factor. Uh, and it actually has little suction cups if you want to uh, clip it to your phone while you're in the charging mode there. Uh, that's $69.99 retail. Cool. Very cool. Cool. Fun stuff. All right. One more. Go. And one more for me. So this I got at a recent show here, and I think it's something, especially uh, with, the, with the temperatures getting cold, but you may find other uses for it. Uh, the Seek Thermal Compact for OtterBox. And what it is, is it's a tiny little thermal camera. And this is a special version of it that will works with the OtterBox Universe case, which I've talked about in the past. So, um, hmm. so it's a thermal camera and the software has a number of very useful features. Um, so it's a 206 by 156 uh, resolution thermal sensor, 36 degree field of view. Uh, it can measure temperatures from negative 40 Fahrenheit to 626 <laughs> Fahrenheit and can go up to a thousand feet. Uh, so it's pretty impressive for a small package. Wow. And the software has a number of modes. Uh, there's a spot mode where you can find a specific temperature, uh, a high-low mode where it'll show you the high and low for what you're looking at, uh, just the regular mode that'll show you uh, you know, a thermal map. On the left, it'll have a uh, calibrated you know, thing ranging from blue, which is cold, uh, up to red, and it'll show you the temperatures and it automatically scales. Like the other day, I was at my sister's and I aimed it at their... Uh, at their uh, oven and uh, it showed me it was you know like 450 degrees i'm like wow uh there's a full frame mode that'll show the temperature of everything in the point it gets kind of crowded but uh, if you want that um there's a threshold mode where you can show temperatures at above or below and then what they call a thermal plus mode that'll show you side by side both the optical view of what you're looking at and the thermal view huh cool and that is uh 249 retail very cool. All right. Uh, I think we had a couple from listeners here. Uh, yeah, Michael. Oh, uh, how come I can never find these? There's always so many things in Cool Stuff Found, and I don't know where this one is, but Michael had found a great Bluetooth speaker. Here it is. Uh, 4.4 stars with 1,600 reviews at Amazon is the Anchor Premium Stereo Bluetooth 4 speaker. He said, in my opinion, it's worth twice that. The sound is amazing and in stereo, very loud with great low end. And it's Anchor too, and lasts for eight hours. It has a 52 milliamp, 5200, my apologies, milliamp hour battery inside. Pair it with a big Anchor 20,000 milliamp battery for your next camping trip. And everything just got upgraded. And obviously he gave us a link that we'll put in the show notes. So it's a... Uh, it's a 20 watt output Bluetooth four speaker with dual 10 watt drivers and two passive subwoofers. I have not tested this, but, uh, but Mike has, and, uh, and obviously comes with very, very high recommendations. So good stuff. I I've always appreciated anchors products. Um, I use their chargers, uh, and charging blocks all the time. So they definitely have a good track record with me. So thanks for sending that in Mike. Great stuff. 
And K- Kurt, uh, because we love talking about routers here because, well, frankly, uh, it's the year of the router. Kurt sent in, how come I can't find, oh, because he didn't send this in. He sent in uh, a, a link actually in the show notes or in the, uh, in the chat room at the end of the last show about gargoyle router. It's gargoyle-router.com. And it's uh, another firmware upgrade for your router. It's a, a third-party firmware that has a lot of great features. He says he likes it better than the DDWRT therm- firmware that uh, that I've been using for years. He said it seems a little more polished. And uh, so we'll put that in the show notes if you're looking for another uh, firmware alternative for your router don't expect to find an Apple router version of this, but uh, but many, many other routers that you might have uh, m- likely have uh, an option to, to upgrade to some of this third-party firmware, gar- Gargoyle included. So very, very cool stuff. Thank you, Kurt. Very good. And then I've tested out a couple of things lately. One of them is called Solos at solos.info. And what this is, it's a, it's a very simple product and design. It's essentially a sticker uh, that you put on the back of your iPhone that has a, it lets you add a little ridge to it. And the point is 10 bucks, right? So relatively inexpensive. You can stick it to your, the back of your phone or to your case. And the point is to give your fingers something to grip that's closer in than the far edge of the phone when your fingers are around the back to allow you to use your thumb uh, on the whole of of your screen without having to like inch around and, and feel like your hands are too small and, and it, and it works. Uh, I've, I've tested a couple of these things and it, you know, you put the sticker on and you move your thumb around. It's just, it's exactly what it says it does. And you can kind of decide because it's up to you. You put the sticker where you want it. So kind of feel out where your hand might fit best and uh, depending on which phone you have and all that good stuff. So very, very cool stuff. Uh, like I said, it's 10 bucks and free shipping. So solos.info and, uh, and comes from a Mac geek gab listener, which is, which is even better. So great stuff. Another thing that I checked out lately, John is called meme M E E M memory.com meme. Yeah. So the idea it's a charging cable with a, a backup uh, with, with some flash storage in it. And when you plug it into your phone the first time, it downloads an app or asks you if you want to download an app. And once you download the app, uh, and it works for, for iOS, of course, but also works for Android, um, it will ask for access to your calendar, your contacts, your photos, a lot of the things that you would want to back up. And then the app in the background, when you plug in to charge every night, backs up all your stuff to the flash storage that's located in the cable and then if something happens to your phone, you download the app on a new phone and you can restore the stuff right back uh, from the cable from there. So it's an interesting concept, right? Because it's local backups, something that we, other than plugging into iTunes or you're, you're plugging into your Mac and using iTunes or iMazing or something like that, uh, you just don't have. And handy if you're traveling in a place where you might not have, you know, Wi-Fi or enough Wi-Fi to uh, be able to reliably do backups every day. So it's an interesting concept, uh, meme memory.com. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. It's interesting, right? Absolutely. Cool. All right. 
a couple more from you, John, and then a couple more from uh, from a listener. Okay, a couple more from me. So uh, when I went to the Synology conference, I also learned about a new drive from Seagate. Um, and it's called their Iron Wolf series. And these are specifically made for NAS devices, uh, like the Synology. <laughs> um, so something to look at here. So uh, it offers a number of features. Um, it has a vibration vibration detection or rotational vibration sensor. So I guess it, if it, uh, which I guess is something you may run into if you have a drive in an as and it starts vibrating, that's bad. Uh, so it has a way to manage that. Um, they have enhanced raid optimization uh, so they can recover better uh, from bad things happening uh, and advanced power management in the drives here. And they offer capacities, Dave, up to, and I'm going to get a few of these to look at, Capacities up to 10 terabytes. Oh, that's awesome. Crazy. And I looked online and actually I think they're uh, fairly, I think they're around 400 bucks, um, depending on where you get them from, uh, for the 10 terabyte version. For so, a um, NAS, a NAS capable or NAS, NAS class. Yes. Wow. That's, that's, wow. That's pretty good. Huh? Yeah. So, um, so if you're getting a NAS Synology or otherwise, um, check out the series of drives. They're cool huge and uh, they have some advanced features that'll make them work really nice in your NAS. Very cool. All right. One more, John, what do you got? Okay. Well, one more is going to be three more, but this is going to be real quick here. Sure. So, um, my cousin actually turned me on to one of these here. So I've been getting into, um, money or getting money back, getting rebates. Who doesn't love money? Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's three of them. So one that, uh, my cousin turned me on to, and I think this is the most full featured is called Ibotta, I B O T T A.com. Get it? Like I bought I, something. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's not only groceries and alcohol, but uh, it actually integrates with other things like um, uh, Groupon. I guess you can link it to other apps and get additional huh. money back. You can uh, be part of a team. And then if, if your team does rebates, you get even more coin back. Uh, the thing I like is that they actually allow you once you, uh, so most of these, once you get $20, you can then either get a check or in this case, they actually will beam it right into your PayPal account and it hmm. happens immediately. So I'm like, cool. And I've gotten some uh, coin from these guys. So that's one. Uh, the second is called checkout51.com. Uh, and that one's mostly, that, that one is uh, at this point, uh, groceries and alcohol. Okay. So if you buy groceries or alcohol, uh, you can get some back from them and they cut you a check once you reach $20. And then the last one here, this is just for the boozers and it's called bevrage.com. Uh, and typically what these do, they either, uh, you scan the barcode of the item that you purchased or you scan your receipt. So don't, so make sure you get a receipt. That's a good quality receipt. That's how they verify that you actually bought what you did and then you get a rebate and then they actually give you money. So check all of these out. That's pretty cool, huh? And you, you said you've gotten some, how long have you been using? How long did it take before you started using them that, that you started getting like some, you know, money trickling back? Uh, well, it depends on, uh, you know, most of them, a uh, couple of weeks. Okay. Depending on the rebates. Oh, and, so, okay. And so buy. relatively quick turnaround. That's pretty good. Huh? I, I've, I've gotten, 
I've gotten at least 20. I think I've gotten at least $40 from all three of them in, in the couple of months I've been using them. So cool. Um, and some I even combine like with, you know, so the store will have something on sale and then I'll get, you know, like I'll call these e-coupons from these guys. Yeah. So uh, some stuff, depending on what you buy, you can get for almost nothing. <laughs> That's pretty cool, man. Huh. Wow. I like it. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting it. new. Uh, yeah. It's an inter that, that all these people all of a sudden popped up uh, doing the scan your receipt. Yeah. Um, and give you money back. I guess. Uh, I guess they work hand in hand with the vendors you know, the people that make the products because they want to sell product. And right. If you can get a little money back or pay less then that Yeah, no, them. it's an incentive. That's right. Yeah. Huh. Very cool. All right. Lastly on our cool stuff found list is Kurt with, uh, well, Kurt has this to say because he says a few episodes back, you mentioned that the transporter sync from Drobo was no longer available. It sounded like you appreciated the functionality of having your own cloud data solution. I wanted to bring your attention to another alternative that will be available in the near future. The folks at NextCloud are close to releasing a data appliance available at a very attractive price. NextCloud is a fork of OwnCloud, which is the open source data cloud solution, which I believe you have also mentioned in recent episodes. NextCloud offers functionality similar to OwnCloud, of course. It provides cloud data storage for photo, music, files, as well as hosting calendar and contact information via standard uh, interfaces. There are Mac and iOS clients for NextCloud. The NextCloud appliance is in the form of a kit. For 80 bucks, you get an enclosure, a one terabyte drive, and a micro SD card with the NextCloud software on it. You have to supply a Raspberry Pi, which costs about 35 bucks. The software supplied is Snappy Ubuntu Core and has all the Apache, MySQL, and NextCloud stuff set up. You just have to customize it a bit. By the way, Snappy Ubuntu Core is a neat technology that delivers a Linux installation that self-updates transactionally. Uh, the applications are delivered as Snappy Core categorized images, and the whole thing is much more secure and less fussy than administering a general-purpose Linux install. You can find out more at nextcloud.com slash box, which, of course, we will put in the show notes. That sounds really interesting. I like the fact that we've got... Um, these, you know, an appliance like kind of like the transporter, although with more features running on a mature platform, right? Own cloud has been around for a long time and you can run it on your Mac. It, it, there was a period of time where it didn't work on the Mac, but now it does. The clients all work, but the server software, kind of the thing that runs the the hub, uh, there was an issue with the Mac for thing for a while, but they, they've resolved that. But running it on something that can just run all the time, even better. So this is very, very cool stuff. I like, I like that uh, these people are thinking like this. So fun. Any thoughts on that, John? It, it's what's next. Well, I guess that's true. Isn't it? I like, I like the idea of running our own stuff. I wish, I really wish I could run my own iCloud photo library, local store, multi-user thing. Here. Well, there is. Eh. No. Yeah, what is it? Photo Station? Oh, I, no. I, I look, I, yeah, I run Photo Station. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's kind of. It's kind of that, but it's, you know, it. the problem is that Apple doesn't offer third parties the way, a, a way to integrate the way Apple's apps can integrate into iOS. And so the smoothest experience is to use Apple's, but then you you kind of live you know, limited in that box. I get it. It's, I mean, it's one of the things that, that attracts us to Apple is that stuff tends to work, but 
you have yeah. to live within the box. Well, yeah. but as you pointed out, uh, iCloud uh, photo library has some uh, <laughs> duplicates effort when it shouldn't. Correct. Aggravating. Yeah. yeah, it's aggravating. That, Let I, me re-index I, all this stuff again. Again. Whoa. Just because. One more time again. Let's do it. Oh, it's awesome. Love it. Yep. It's great. Anyway, uh, let's, uh, oh, you know, there was one tip that, uh, that I was, I really should have saved for a future, uh, tips episode, but there's so many great things in, in here that I have to share. Daniel says, I've been meaning to send this tip for a long time. And after seeing the list of terminal shortcuts that I put in our Facebook group, Facebook group, which is at Facebook dot uh, com slash groups slash Mac geek gab or more simply Mac geek dot com slash Facebook. Uh, he says, I was finally reminded uh, first. Everyone probably knows that you can hit command space or something else that you can figure to open spotlight. But did you know that once spotlight is up, you can use the following shortcuts after you've typed your search term. Command B will open a browser window with a Google search for whatever term you've typed. So you do command space for spotlight from within any app, of course, because it's system wide, you type in whatever you want to search for. And then if you hit command B, you're now in your web browser searching Google for that. Similarly, command L will highlight the dictionary entry if available for the word that you entered in spotlight and command D will open the dictionary app for that entry. Since I actually learned about these from an Apple rep, when I was participating in a beta test for whatever new OS it was five years ago and noticed they had changed the spotlight behavior that used to show the dictionary at the top of the results list. I told them I was frustrated at the change because I often use spotlight to quickly look up words and they sent me these handy gems. Now in writing this, I also realized using spotlight as a quick dictionary, may be a tip in and of itself. And that's been while I'm sharing that. I might as well remind people that Spotlight can also be used as a calculator just by typing an equation. The Spotlight calculator was actually one of my top favorite features when switching from uh, uh, switching to Mac from Windows XP. And I also want to mention something about force quitting apps on the Apple Watch. In WatchOS 2, you could force quit an app by holding down the side button, the one below the digital crown or above it if you wear your crown on the left as uh, as is appropriate. Uh, until the power off screen came up, uh, the releasing and holding it down again uh, until you were returned to the app, I, then releasing it and holding it down again until you returned to the app icon screen. However, in watchOS 3, I started to try this and freaked out when my watch made a siren noise and looked like it was going to activate the new emergency SOS feature. Fortunately, I think I released the button before it did any harm. So I found out the new way to force quit an app on the watch is to hold down the side button until the power off screen comes up. Then instead of hitting the same button again, press and hold the digital crown. So similar, but not exactly the same. So thank you so much for these, Daniel. This is, these are great tips, especially the spotlight thing. I had no idea about the browser window uh, one or the dictionary one. Those are, those are good little tips, man. I like it. All right, John, we have some follow-ups from last week's show. You want to, uh, you want to take us? Take and these a- are good follow-ups. And I did not know about these, Dave, because I don't think I've ever used the machines in question. Kind of skipped them. So first we got one from Brian uh, saying, Hi, guys. I have a 2011 MacBook Pro that has one audio port that is input. Or is it? When I first bought the Mac, that is, and I still use it, I found in System Preferences Sound Input tab. 
There's a control towards the bottom that reads use idiot. No, not idiot port. <laughs> I don't think any Mac has an idiot port. <laughs> use input port four. You can switch it from output to input. I often use it for recording. I've seen and used this on every OS from Mountain Lion to Sierra. So, um, and then I looked in Mac Tracker, and uh, it looks like up until about 2012, they did in fact offer this thing, and they call it a combo port. Right. So, uh, so for people, um, yeah, for people that want to record, um, because we had a question earlier about how do I record on the latest machines. Now, the thing is, unfortunately. This option doesn't seem to be available on any of the latest machines. But if you have an older machine, rather than getting a USB adapter, which was our suggestion, um, you may just, the OS can do it for you. Cool. Very and cool. Then, um, and then Daniel, um, and, and we're like blood brothers here because uh, he said, <laughs> greetings, I'm having a yelling at the car speakers moment. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me is like a fish shake uh, moment when you guys are, were selling USB interfaces. I don't know if we were selling them. We were just suggesting. Sure. There's an easier answer. The iMacs that I've used support the four ring 3.5 millimeter plug, which means to have recording and playback capabilities. All you need is a $6 splitter. See the link. And he recommends a splitter. I guess we'll paste that in there. Um, if my memory serves, it will even recognize play, pause, skip commands from headphones that are so equipped. Yep. And he's right about that. Yeah. Yeah, and in a similar vein, uh, several iMacs, though not the latest, um, have this combo port, which I guess you could either... So I guess what he's saying is that you can have an adapter to make it multi-purpose, or through the OS, you can, I guess, change its personality. Sure. Right? Yeah, right. right. So I, I never knew that. I think because the machines that I have typically hit... Yeah, both of them have both explicit input and output ports. Sure. So I never knew Apple did that for, for a while. You probably did. I did. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I thought about mentioning it, actually, when we started that segment about recording the serious stream last time. And, and I don't know, we, we got off on the the concept of, of inputs and I, I lost it, as frankly would happen. But yeah, good stuff. Uh, along those lines, listener Michael wrote in and said, instead of using the uh, audio input to record from an external serious receiver, why not um, bypass all of that and just use audio hijack, which he's already using, which, which he was uh, to grab the stream from the browser, because you can pull up Sirius right there in the browser. And then you're, you're getting a, you know, direct digital recording, uh, which is a great idea. So never forget that audio hijack is capable of doing that kind of thing. And if you can, if you can get audio happening inside your computer, you can capture it right there and record it with audio hijack, which um, not, ironically is exactly how this podcast is and always has been recorded audio hijack has been a foundational piece of getting mac geek gab and many many other podcasts recorded for uh well over a decade so okay so serious is a subscription yeah okay all right so okay i get it because i think the the person that talked before had a dedicated serious receiver right? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay yep got it and then Ken says, uh, I just listened to show 627 about the scam ads. And sometimes when I see them, I can't close the tab. Or when I quit Safari and open it again, I see the same ad that I still can't close. 
The only way I can fix it is to hold down the shift key when I start Safari. It deletes all of my previous tabs, but stops the scam ad from showing up again, which is right. If you if you if starting Safari is opening a tab that for whatever reason is giving you trouble, uh, be it a crashing thing or, or something else, hold down the shift key uh, when you start Safari again, and it will do so without refreshing and reloading all the tabs that you had. So very, very good tip, Ken. Thank you for uh, for that. And then in regards to our latest discussions about photos and location and all of that, uh, listener Mike says, maybe I'm missing something, but the macOS photos app includes a menu item for removing the location from selected photos. It's in image location, remove location. There's also an item for reverting to original location. So I suppose you could remove the location, export the photo, then revert to the original location, but I've never actually used it. So there's a, there's a suggestion for you, John. And anyone that uh, wants to share photos without the location attached, but might want it for other purposes. Oh, okay. I can, I think Aperture. Yeah. Yeah. I think Apple, the, the, the desktop programs have always had that buried somewhere. Okay. Good to know. Yep. And uh, back in show 623, we were talking about fireproof safes and listener David said, just a quick follow up. Uh, to that listener who is working very hard to create a multi-layered backup system. He noted that he puts a data disc in a Ziploc bag into a small fire safe that he could pick up and run with danger says David fireproof safes are rated to the combustion temperature of paper data storage media are damaged at far lower temperatures. Fireproof safes rated for data are much heavier and he will be not be picking he will not be picking any of those up and running anywhere with them. Uh, he would be better leaving an encrypted backup drive in his car or at his office. Right now, his trust in his safe is misplaced. So bear that in mind that fireproof safes are fireproof for paper and will keep paper inside them from combusting, but not necessarily keep your precious hard drive from melting. And that's an important distinction. So thank you, David, for sharing that. It's fun stuff. Oh, gosh. You know, there. I'll see if I can find it, but there was a company at the Synology conference I went to that does make enclosures that will protect your NAS from fire. Oh, I'll see if I can I, I checked. I checked them out. It's probably uh, IOSafe yes. that, that did yes. this. Yep. And they make, it's both fireproof and waterproof uh, for your data. And it's, yeah, it's it's essentially IOSafe's enclosure with the Synology uh, guts inside of it. So you're running all the same Synology stuff, but yeah, I checked, I checked out IOSafe, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And it, it, I'll tell you what David's point about weight being a, a, a major part of this is um, for sure. Uh, uh, true. These, these things are heavy, 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 but um, I felt bad for our UPS guy. Let's just put it that way. When, uh, when stuff showed up, but, but yeah, yeah, but that'll do it. It definitely. So yeah, and it looks like most of them are on the order of thousands of. Well, that's of course with the NAS inside. So right, okay. right, right. But hey, if you have frequent fires and floods, uh, go for it. <laughs> I'm totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's pretty amazing. But um, we'll do it. We'll put a link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, good stuff. All right, uh, I want to talk about our two sponsors, John. If that works for you, yeah. Outstanding. Sweet. Uh, the first that I want to talk about is Harry's because I've been having to shave every day on the weekends, John. 
uh, this this show that I'm part of. I know oh. it sounds crazy, but here's the reason. If I don't, I pay for it because this show that I'm doing, this theater show that I'm doing, uh, I have to wear makeup and uh, taking off makeup involves baby wipes are frankly the easiest way to get like the bulk of the makeup off. If you've ever taken a baby wipe, baby wipes are not built to be used on stubble. This might not come as a surprise to you when you stop and think about it. Uh, it's awful. They shred. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So I've been shaving every day on the weekend and I'm really, really stoked about the new Harry's blades that have come out. These, you know, other razor companies, they come out with new technology in their blades and they charge you more. Harry's comes out with new technology in their blades and they charge you the same that they always have. They've, their five blade razors now include, uh, it's a, a better hinge. It's a softer hinge. So it kind of contours easier. It's got a trimmer blade on the back. So there's five blades on the, on the front, like you'd normally shave with. And then if you turn it around, there's a little trimmer on the back to make it really easy to kind of, you know, carve in your sideburns or, or even the edge of your, your beard or whatever it is you're doing. Um, there's a little lubricating strip on it. And, uh, it, and, and now their, their new handles are textured for more control when they're wet. And it's still just two bucks a blade compared with, compared with like four or, or more, frankly, that you'd pay elsewhere. Here's an interesting thing, though, and I mentioned this in the pre-show, so pay attention, even if you've used Harry's before, because this offer might be available to you. They want to send you a free trial set. So unless you have received a free trial set before, a free trial set before, then you are eligible for this offer. So you can only get one free trial set, but if you haven't gotten one yet, you can do this. So what you're going to do is you go to harrys.com and order your free trial set. It comes with a razor, a blade, and shaving gel. That's what you get with Harry's free trial. I think you're going to pay three bucks for shipping, uh, but that's it. If you use coupon code MGG, they will add a post-shave bomb to that order. And that post-shave bomb is, is typically five bucks. So... Sign up for the uh, the free trial set. They will ask you to sign up for a subscription where they continue to send you blades on a frequency that matches you. If you're someone like me, like me that doesn't always shave every day, uh, I think the frequency would be like once every five months they send you blades. But you can cancel that. You don't have to. You don't have to stay up with that. So if you haven't tried Harry's before, or it's been a while, or you simply want to refresh your, your kit and you haven't uh, done the free trial yet, go to harrys.com, get the free trial, put in coupon code MGG to get your post shave balm added to your order for free and uh, enjoy these new blades. Like I've been using them, man, John, it's like, it's great. I didn't do it yesterday. I, I don't know. I got distracted before I left and paid the price last night after the show. My, my face was all like fuzzy from the silly baby wipes, but you know, that's how it goes. So the life of uh, being on stage with makeup, but it's fun. So thank you very much to Harry's for sponsoring this episode and fat cat software, the makers of power photos at fatcatsoftware.com slash M G G. We talk about power photos all the time. Uh, regardless of whether they're a sponsor because of how awesome power photos is power photos is the extension that frankly, Apple should have built in my opinion uh, to iPhoto and oh, well, sorry to photos prior to that 
iPhoto Library Manager, also from Fat Cat Software, was the same thing for iPhotos. So Power Photos for Photos, iPhoto Library Manager for iPhoto, if you're still using that. These are apps that add features that you need. Power Photos uh, can be used to manage multiple libraries. It has its own photo browser. You can search, you can view photos in list view. You can copy photos back and forth between libraries or the opposite. You can take one big library if it's too big and you want to kind of move it around and split it into multiple libraries. You can merge libraries together. It's got a great photo duplicate eliminator. Power Photos is awesome at this. It's, I, I find it much more intuitive and reliable than, than anything else I've tried. Um, and if you have multiple iPhoto libraries, it will help you migrate those into photos. So if you were someone that, that uh, had multiple iPhoto libraries and only brought one of them in, you know, brought your main library into f f uh, photos, power photos will help you do the rest and really, really great stuff. I, I couldn't live without it. It, it is the thing. Like I said, it allowed me to um, import my dad's photos in uh, and, and inherited his folder structure from his windows machine as albums, which nothing else would do really great piece of software and totally something you need in your toolbox. If you're doing anything uh, of any substance with photos, here's the good news. Visit fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG and then use coupon code MGG and that will save you 20% off the purchase of not just Power Photos, but a Power Photos license also includes a license to iPhoto Library Manager just in case you need to use something with iPhoto 2. You've got it. So coupon code MGG will save you 20%. Visit them at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG. My sincere thanks, our sincere thanks to Fat Cat Software and Power Photos for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, it's time to get to some questions. And listener Sam kind of headed us down. We're probably going to dig pretty deep into geek mode. I don't think so, actually. Anyway, Sam has two questions. He says, whenever I have had to make Genius Bar appointments, I've seen that they use a special diagnostic software available only to the geniuses. Ages ago, it used to be called Behavior Scan, but I'm not sure what it's called now. Is there software like this available for us normal people to use? Number two, and this is where it gets interesting. I know from another one of your tips that there is a way to get the diagnostics log from the iPhone under the settings app. I believe it is the AWDD files under diagnostics and usage. What command should I be looking for to see a what app keeps requesting the location and therefore killing the battery? Uh, B, a command that will indicate a crash. Maybe that will help to pinpoint an app that is guilty and keep crashing. Any other tips on running diagnostics? So, uh, John, let's, let's answer question number one first. I believe, but please correct me if I'm mistaken, that the diagnostics that Apple runs is a, a web page, but only available to people that have an Apple login, an Apple employee login. Is that correct? Um. I don't believe that's it. I'll share what I observed when I last yeah. set up a, an appointment at the Genius Bar. So as far as I know now, the diagnostics software is cleverly hidden inside of the phone. Really? How do you access this, you may ask? And I'll tell you. So go into Safari. On my phone. 
Yeah, and if you have okay. an iOS device, go into Safari. I'm there. And you can see what I see. Yeah. And then type the following as a web address. D-I-A-G-S colon slash slash. And wait. Hang on. All these notifications coming up about podcasts. Open this page in diagnostics. And then the number that comes afterwards. So the answer is yes. And so the thing is the diagnostic software is embedded in, in iOS. The thing is that number that you put there, as far as that I can tell from, from the research that I did. And also when I was sitting with the guy who was running the Wait, diagnostics. What number, what are you talking about? Well, I, I went to Safari. I typed. Okay. In, I'm sorry. If you type in diags colon slash slash, yeah. what comes after that is from what I understand your support ticket number oh. when you visit the genius, but when you visit them. So I believe what happens is that when you get on their network and you enter the ticket number, it will then go to, I think a diagnostic server that they must have on their network okay. and then run it. The thing is, unless you have a valid number there. So if you, but okay, this you. isn't totally useless because if you do this, so for example, I type diags colon slash slash one, two, three, four, five. I did the same thing. Yeah. And then it says, open this page in diagnostics. And I say, okay, open. Now the thing is, then it comes up and it says, well, error, I couldn't start the session with Apple. Right. Which I think means I can't find the diagnostic server or your ticket number on the network that you're on. But there is a history tab. So I'm curious if you click on that, if you're going to see the results of past diagnostic mm. sessions. M mine is blank, but I have not brought this phone into. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, um, huh. I just thought I'd offer that. Okay. So, so you're not going to be able to run it unless you're at the Genius Bar and you have a support ticket um, on the network. Because the, the last time I was there, I looked also and I'm like, wait, how, how are you running? How are you doing this? Right, right. <laughs> and it's actually built in now. So it's not a separate piece of software. So the answer is, I don't think the software, yeah, it's, it's not available to us. Got it. Okay. As far as I know, this is how they do it. Um, yeah, no, so that makes set sense. Set up an appointment at the Genius Bar and then watch, yes, watch what happens. <laughs> yeah, no, you can learn a lot just being quiet and listening and, and observing. It's true. Um, all right. So to answer Sam's other question, I, I started to dig because the last time that I had looked and he's right, it, it, it used to be at least in the AWDD logs that you could see when an app was requesting location data. You kind of have this big, long history and you'd have to scroll through it and, but you, you could find it and you could see if something was obsessively doing this and then maybe overrunning the battery or not sleeping. I, I think far more of a CPU or sorry, far more of a battery drain than an app requesting location data is an app that is not effectively sleeping in the background. Um, uh, location data, I think, is is a bit of a red herring. A lot of times the phone is always aware of your location um, unless you truly go in and turn off all location services. There's system services that are tracking your frequent locations. Uh, you probably have a weather app that's, you know, if you use something like Dark Sky or uh, Storm that's tracking your, your you know, hyper location uh, with weather. But it's doing this very, very efficiently and I found that the location stuff, even geofences aren't as awful as they used to be, but an app that won't sleep in the background is a killer in terms of battery life. So that that's kind of what you want to look for. But in any event, I had not done this with iOS 10 yet. So I wanted to dig and, and see, 
And the first thing is that diagnostics are stored in settings. Again, this is on your iOS device settings, privacy, diagnostic and usage data. Uh, and as long they are stored there, as long as, um, as long as automatically send is enabled, if it's not, it won't save as many logs. Uh, there'd be a lot less stuff stored. So, um, in there, you can see the logs and they're sort of named by, uh, app date and, and time. There are a few non app logs that are helpful. And AWDD is, is the first one that one shows you a lot of information, as I said, but can give you an overall picture. I didn't see location stuff in here, uh, but I'll get to that in a minute. There is Jetsum event, and that seems to have info on apps that have been running, but then force quit by the iOS by iOS to to free up resources. So that could be again something. It, it's an indicator of something. Uh, location D, uh, those are appear to me to be crash logs for things that were trying to get your location and, and, and failed again, could be helpful if it exists. And then there's, there's logs called log dash aggregated. And that one, I can't really, I, 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 and I'm curious to anyone else's, you know, findings through all of this, but here's the thing. It's kind of a pain to look through all those and find location messages or find other messages. And I thought, well, let's see what happens. Can I get these logs onto my Mac? So I plugged my iPhone into my Mac and then I launched console and this was on my Sierra Mac and my iPhone showed up, John in the list on the left. And so did my Apple watch. Oh, I'm glad you tried this. Someone told us this was a, a it's apparently yeah, Sierra only feature yeah. that the uh, console now sees Dude, seize your phone. It's awesome. So the iPhone shows up as a separate entry in the sidebar, and then it proceeds to slurp in all of your logs. The, the only problem I found was that it was assigning the time of the slurp to the log entries. So the time timestamps aren't going to necessarily be right. But um, otherwise, all the data was there. And the nice part is it's Mac OS console app. So you can search and filter. So. Um, but it's a little weird in the console app. I, I found some odd stuff about this, John. You can search for stuff. If you want to look for location, you can type location. No problem. There's no obvious way to do what I would call an advanced search where you're saying, look for location, uh, in the field that is, you know, activity name or, you know, contains or does not contain those types of things. There's no way to, uh, no obvious way, at least not to me to do an advanced search. However, at the top of the screen, there's a little, um, uh, I don't know what we'd call it, but a, just a, a little tab that says errors and faults instead of all messages. And if I click errors and faults, it automatically creates a customized slash advanced search in the search bar showing drop downs for message type contains, does not contain all of this stuff. I'm just not sure how to get that to come up normally. Um, this all works for Mac stuff as well, too. So the um, console app really has a lot of different stuff now, and especially, you know, uh, huge is the ability to see <laughs> into your iPhone, which I which I find really, really cool. But um, 
Yeah. So if you go to errors and faults, it changes the search from uh, the search bar. It adds message message type is error and message type is fault. So it kind of filters out all of the, um, you know, kind of just a lot of the, the generic messages that might be saved to the logs for, um, for other reasons, but it's interesting stuff. There's also an activities button in the toolbar of console that will filter things down to what it considers activities. Again, just trying to filter out some of the, the general cruft. So very interesting stuff. Are you messing with this now while we're, uh, while we're talking, John? No, because I don't have a cable handy. The thing I wanted to check is that we recently mentioned another tool. The uh, I don't know if you tried the Apple Configurator tool called Apple Configurator yep. 2. That's also something that lets you, at the very least, view the live console on an iOS device. I'm not sure. I think it also lets you uh, examine or download these logs but I can't try it now and I probably shouldn't because we know what happened the last time I tried to type in a command <laughs> and rebooted my machine. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's cool stuff. I, I like, I like what they've done here. Well, they did it also. All right. So, so it absolutely lets you, uh, did, did it also let you view the, the, the console? I think that's what someone mentioned to us of the iOS device um, live. Well, yeah, I mean, you, well, listen, all you're seeing on the Mac when you, uh, when you look in console is you're seeing the output of the D message log, right? Which, which is just the, the generic console. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a log file that you're seeing in real time and yes, you would get the same thing on the iPhone. It's, I mean, it's updated in real time. Right, but there's log files which are stored from the past, and then there's there's live. So it sounds like what you're saying is that it, it should let you do both. Well, huh? <laughs> Say that again. Um, I'm differentiating between log files that uh, are stored on a device, yes, and the live information coming into the console, like as the device is running. Right. But what I'm saying is those are one and the same. The device is logging to a file and you are just seeing the results of that logging happening live. That that's, that, that's yeah. how a Unix machine works. Right. When you, when you talk about yeah. The, yeah, seeing the console, you're looking at the D message log and yes, you can see that uh, in, in, in iOS too, but it, it, it's also logged to a file. There's no, there's no difference there. Okay. Right. I mean, you're, you're just looking at the, 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 what you're looking at, what's being added to the file live. When you, when you say you're looking at live logs, that's all that means. Right. But at some point, some of that gets stored away in, in a file. No, it, <laughs> yeah, yes. And that point is when it, when it happens. It, it then after time, like it, when, when, for example, on, on the Mac, um, messages i believe is you know var log messages right i don't think there's a separate log for d message on the mac I, I use too many different unixes so yeah it's um it's it's messages right isn't it messages what am i used to seeing here is it var log system log i get so confused with this stuff john because i use too many different things so if i'm in var log and i look at system.log right yeah okay there it is 
So I believe that's it. Yeah. So system.log is the live log file that's happening on my Mac. Um, and then after that log, after I think it's every 24 hours, a piece of software runs in the background on your Mac that rotates that out and saves system.log as, um, hang on, as system.log.0.gz and kind of rolls all these logs right. around. But it's always being saved to a file. There, there's yes. no just log happening in memory somewhere. Right. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, you answered my question. Yes, it's so, all being written to a file, but there's now and then there's in the, the past. past. Yeah, correct. There's the active file and then the non-active file, the, the, the historical stuff. That's right. And it, and it rotates those around so that you're not stuck with, you know, 300 days of log files. It looks like OS X does um, 10 of them, zero through nine. So, And I think, I'm not getting too far off the beaten path here, but there are still these maintenance scripts that are run at least on OS 10. Yeah. Well, and I think on iOS that um, actually, yeah, either they compress do them or, yeah. or ditch them. I think after a while, it's like, well, you don't need 10 year old log files. So yeah, it's, I'm right. going to delete those. That's correct. Save some space for you. Yeah, no, that's what happens is those periodic uh, things, the daily, the, the weekly and the monthly, I'll sort of rotate those out. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's help Ed with some, troubleshooting here because just we like you ed actually we love all of you it's how it's how we are uh ed starts he says hey guys love the show we just said same uh i have recently switched from pdf pen pro to pdf expert both are good apps but expert just looks cleaner for me and doesn't overwhelm me with visible choices that i rarely use pdf expert hides those so they are available if and when i need them the problem is this when I receive an email with PDF attachments, they still show as a PDF pen icon rather than as a PDF expert icon. This is even after I made PDF expert the default PDF reader editor. I've Googled this and I can't seem to find a solution. I could completely remove PDF pen from the MacBook Pro, but I do want to keep it just in case. Yeah, so the, the, the part that wasn't clear in your question, Ed, was whether or not clicking on these launches pdf expert as you prefer or if uh if it's actually launching pdf pen so is it just an icon issue or is it still an association issue that's not being persisted my assumption is that it is the former it is launching pdf expert but showing you the icon for pdf pen um assuming that it's likely that your icon services cache needs to be reset possible that your launch services uh cache needs to be reset so uh your icon services so first and foremost onyx can do both of these things um in the cleaning tab for icon services and the automation tab is the easiest place to find launch services but if you want to do them manually uh you can do so uh at uh, at his furbo.org blog, Craig Hockenberry puts a uh, a couple of command line pieces together for resetting the uh, icon services database. And then uh, at Tech Review, Jim Tannis has put together a piece explaining how to do the same with launch services if you want to do those manually. But uh, but that's that's how it's all going to happen. Any thoughts on that, John? I don't like caches. 
Well, you kind of do, though. They just, they just lead to frustration. Well, they also make your, your system run a whole lot more efficiently. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you get to pick, right? But it seems half the time the answer to a question is, did you try turning it off and on again or clear the caches? Yeah. Well, that's the problem is caches, <laughs> you know, they do great things. They store all this data that we need. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they get a little confused and they need a little help. <laughs> and by help, I mean, they need to be totally blown away. Yeah. Or like, you know, say somebody infects the uh, DNS caches uh, globally. Like, uh, didn't that just happen? <laughs> yeah. Let, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I want to talk about this. Um, because I think it's important and I, 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 I know a little bit about what happened. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a, what's called a distributed denial of service attack that happened on the, mainly on the servers of a company called Dyne, which is actually right, you know, like 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes from me here in, uh, in Manchester, New Hampshire, as it turns out, Dyne manages the DNS for a lot of really popular companies twitter reddit uh among amongst uh, those were sort of the two of the big ones but there's lots more that were affected by this a denial of service attack is when you request let, let's say you wanted to do a denial of service attack against the mac observer right so what you would do is you would just set up a bot on your computer to request web pages from us and if you request enough web pages from, and trust me, we're actually pretty well protected with this simply because we use a, a, an engine called Varnish, but everything has its limits, right? So um, if you request a web page from us, it takes a, a bit of server resources for us to process that request. And with our caching, it, it really, we've limited the resources required, but it still requires a resource. You could overload our server by having your computer running a little script that grabbed attempted to grab lots and lots of web pages from us essentially filling up our ability to serve web pages just for you denying service now oh. to everyone else well that's easy to guard against if it's a single person you just limit what the single yeah i just put an entry in our firewall ip address can do that's saying it. okay you know the throttle this yeah don't list don't answer that person anymore just answer everyone yeah. else Get, that's correct. an easy way to solve that problem then right well that's Ooh. a dos attack and i said this was a ddos attack yes, a distributed no i'm glad you know this is great right so this is the the problem is if you can get lots say thousands of computers to participate in your attack of mac observer how do i know who to block and the answer is I don't because how do I differentiate your uh, nefariously intentioned bots request for valid web services for me from other people's well-intentioned requests for web services for me? And it's a very difficult thing to do. A lot of times with a DDoS attack, the right answer, and it's not a fun one, is wait, it will go away. Because what else do you do? Um, and what you can do is start looking at the packets that are coming in and trying to figure out, okay, can we tell which of these are bad and which are, are not bad? And can we find something that is 
an indicator when a request comes in that, yes, this is going to be a bad one. This is not going to be a bad one and filter them before they get to the engine that requires resources to process. Can we just discard these requests? And it, it looks like uh, I haven't dug too deep into this because I've been kind of busy this weekend, but it looks like it was bought. Some, somebody set up a bot that, that leveraged all the uh, default passwords on a bunch of webcams that are out there. And it wasn't just the default passwords. They'd set up default passwords for terminal access, SSH access to the, uh, to a, the webcams made by a certain Chinese manufacturer, which a lot of other companies, OEM that a user can't change. Even if you change the password on it, it would still have this default SSH password. And, and that's, that's just bad. <laughs> but so a lot of people blamed, uh, overall, and I think it's somewhat accurate, uh, crummy internet of thing device security right? for this being able to happen. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a lot of people said, so I think you, not so much me, uh, several people have shaken their, shook their fist or are shaking it uh, as we speak at Apple for making HomeKit so ridiculously secure. And as we've said in the past, security and usability are, you know, are like right. inverse. Yep. Um, the thing is, maybe now, you know, making HomeKit maybe ridiculously secure in that I know that they use all sorts of crypto and authentic. Um, if everything was HomeKit, then maybe this would not have happened. It, well, that's true, right? But. The, the problem is HomeKit's, relatively speaking, a very new standard. I think these, you know, the, certainly the, the software that runs these cameras uh, that were used in this attack existed before HomeKit did. Um, and, and the problem is because HomeKit requires so much for the developers of the devices to do, it, it's, it's not getting the adoption that, uh, that it should or could if Apple made it easier and therefore, even if a manufacturer builds a device to work with HomeKit, they're definitely also going to build that device to work with things like Amazon's Alexa and other platforms because they don't want to limit their audience, right? They don't want to listen, limit their potential customer market. So it's like, oh yeah, we'll add HomeKit compatibility to what we do. But we're going to keep doing all these other things because we want to keep selling our products. HomeKit's a very difficult thing to adopt. It's difficult for oh, users yeah. to manage. It's difficult for for hardware manufacturers to to bake in support. Uh, it's just not. It, I, it it's well intentioned, but until Apple. The, I think the only way I, I agree with, with what Apple wants to do is, you know, to make it so that you can't just be running something that is inherently insecure, but I, I, they, I think they're trying to control it too much. They, they've gone too far with it. There, there are other ways of getting this done, but the, again, the problem is it's always, it's the weakest link in the chain and all of these devices are, are going to do things other than HomeKit. And so it doesn't really matter that HomeKit exists, frankly, un unless it was the only thing that existed. But, um, but even with that, I'm not convinced that a problem like this wouldn't happen, right? Okay, you build in HomeKit support. That's the only standard that we use. But, oh, yeah, by the way, we left, you know, SSH open. 
Um, and, and, and it has a default username and password that the user can't easily change. So I, I, I just, yeah, HomeKit's not the answer here. The answer is hardware vendors not leaving gaping holes like this open. And again, you know, blaming IOT devices for this is not inaccurate, but it's also not the only place we've seen this, right? I mean, it, you know, w- what is Internet of Things? It's just other devices in your house that have computers in them that that perform, I, I don't know, limited functions. I mean, it's a very nebulous description, r- right? You know, your, your iPhone isn't a thing. It just happens to be a smartphone. So, okay, you know, your printer is a thing and printers have been like Swiss cheese for security for a long time because nobody thinks about securing their printer. Nobody thinks about changing. Seriously, have you ever thought to change the admin password on your printer? Oh, of course. Of course you have. Right. Well, I don't even know if my printer printers have admin see what i'm saying i think one of them does one of the well my inkjet doesn't but i think my laser because i can access it by ethernet yes right Um, right so but see what i'm saying do you even know have have you even looked and and you yes i have the yeah but the my gcc does have a web interface and and i did change the uh, default password right no one else does I mean, because you think, well, it's my printer. Uh, it's not exposed to the Internet. Well, the answer is, I mean, it kind of could be, uh, you, you know, do you do you really know that it's not exposed to the Internet? I was I was actually searching. I know I did this once in the past and it was kind of shocking what I found. But many HP printers uh, offer a web interface and they have a certain string of text. Mm. And I couldn't find it immediately, but there there was an article uh, or a tip I found somewhere saying, hey, if you search for this particular string of characters and you Google it, it's basically going to show you everybody who has incorrectly set up their network printer so that it it, it is exposing itself to the Internet. Right, right. <laughs> and then you can connect to it and, you know, print uh, shenanigans. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Right. But, but you know, <laughs> these, these devices are all generally all little Linux computers, right, is, is what they are because it's, it's really inexpensive. We just talked about how you could get a Raspberry Pi for 35 bucks. That's consumer pricing in a Raspberry Pi. If you want to buy 10,000 of, of those, you're going to get it a lot cheaper. And, hey, by the way, your printer doesn't need nearly the CPU horsepower that a Raspberry Pi does. So, you know, these things are cheap and it's the right way for a manufacturer to go and and build things. And they take an off the shelf Linux distro and they bake it in and off they go. And does it get updated when, you know, the Linux core updates its security stuff because a new bug has been found? No, you know, so we, we all have these things in our homes and, and a lot of them are, you know, many years old. I mean, your printer is older than my children and I guarantee it doesn't have the latest security updates from, you know, from whatever Linux distro it's running. I guarantee it because you haven't been updating it because the updates aren't available anymore. Right. So you find a, a manufacturer that was popular. If you're a hacker, you find a manufacturer that it was or is popular, didn't or doesn't update their security anymore. Look online for a hole that exists in whatever the old distro was, because the way these zero day exploits are is, you know, the, uh, the people that find them tell the manufacturers first, they wait X number of days, and then they release the, the details to the public. 
giving the manufacturers enough time to update their stuff. But if this stuff's not updated, then these holes exist. So it really is a problem. Um, I don't know how we solve this without just saying, Hey, all right, that's it. I'm, uh, I'm not going to use any more computers in my house. And you know, that's, and that's a very broad term, your air conditioner, your refrigerator, your washing machine, uh, certainly your printers, right? I mean, all of these things have computers in them. Many of them are now connected to the internet. So what do you do? It's a tough, it's a tough question, but that's why this particular hack happened was, was these things from a company called Mirai. I think uh, they were the ones that were, you know, baking the, the or building the, the, the core components that lots of other vendors OEM, but yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a tough thing, right? The it, way to solve the problem, Dave, is you pack it in and you live in a cabin in the woods. That's it. Right. Brick, but don't put windows on your house. Just brick cabin, no doors either. You don't want people getting in. Well, and no phone and no internet. I mean, just that's correct. Know, why do you yeah. need all that stuff? And yeah, don't, don't read the, com- don't read the comments either. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the DDoS attack took care of that for Reddit on, on Friday. So, but here, so here's the interesting part is on Friday morning, I woke up and started seeing people posting on Facebook that they couldn't get to Twitter. And they were saying, Oh, there's an outage in the Northeast. And, and some of these people were like my very local neighbors and some were people in like Massachusetts and, and Connecticut. And so I fired up my Twitter app and it came up just fine. And I went to the Twitter webpage and it came up just fine. Well, Twitter's not down. Okay. And so I started posting and I'm like, well, if the service is up, but you can't get there, that tells me that there's either a routing issue, but if my neighbor can't get there and they, I know they're on the same ISP that I am, it's probably not a routing issue because we would both be following the same route. So that rules that out. So the service isn't down. It's not a routing issue. What is it? Ah, you have a DNS issue. It means you can't, find the address of the server you want to get to. And I quickly concluded, it turns out correctly that the fact that I have my network here set to use open DNS for my DNS is the thing that saved me all day on Friday. I never once saw an issue with any of this stuff because open DNS is a service that caches and, and tries to make DNS lookups more efficient and also does some filtering and things like that to make sure I'm not, you know, accidentally loading things I don't want to load. And, and it works very, very well, but there's no smugness about saying, Hey, I was smart enough to use open DNS. So I wasn't affected. It could just as have easily been an attack against open DNS. And then I would have been the one affected and no one else would have. I just happened to, to get lucky with this particular one that the DNS service that I use was not affected because they're, they are smart about the way they do things and they cache things specifically so that if the main DNS server for a domain can't be reached, it will use older data that it should be refreshing, but can't and still try and get you to the website or, or, or server that you want to get to. So using open DNS was definitely the, uh, the thing that saved me all day Friday. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I was on the road, so I was using mostly my Verizon data connection on my uh, okay. phone. Yeah. So I don't think I, so I don't think they were really impacted either because I, I didn't have any issues getting to anything I needed to get to. 
I think it also points to the fact that the DNS infrastructure is kind of one of the Achilles heels of the uh, internets right now. And that for the most part, as far as I know, you, you've done more of this, you know, setting up domains and all that. But I think for the most part, there really isn't a lot of security in the whole DNS infrastructure. It's kind of everybody trusts everybody else to a certain extent, but it's not. No, it's true. There's certainly things that could be done to uh, toughen it up and make it less prone to uh, an attack like this. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a DNS is a problem for sure. Or an easy potential target because I don't think a lot of time any authentication occurs when one DNS server goes to another and says, Hey, here, here's some new info. And it's like, Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. you, Well, a little bit does. I mean, you need to have glue at the root servers um, in that the domain, the, the, when when you push an update, like if we push an update for Mac Observer, it will the, the the server that gets that first from us will confirm that we are the authority. So the way it works is we run we actually run our own DNS server, uh, which is a little strange, and then we use some others for for secondary DNS if ours fails or is inaccessible. Um, if you go and say, I want to know what the IP address for www.macobserver.com is, it will first go to the root servers. So there is a set of servers that are the authority and it will go to those root servers and say, okay, who is the authority for macobserver.com? And it'll point you to our server or, or, you know, some of the other ones that we've defined as our secondaries. And it says, okay, great. I'll go look up there. And then there's sort of a cascade of things. So there's lots of holes in the system where you could kind of hijack the traffic, but th- there is that bit of auth- authentication is not the right thing, but you're saying, okay, yeah, go to that DNS server. That's where you're going to get the authority for this particular domain. Um, and then it's cached down the line and, and yeah, you could totally poison a cache easily. It would be no issue at all. <laughs> Okay, and then sometimes I'll look something up and it'll say non-authoritative answer, which I think is something that it pulled out of a cache That's right. Yeah, okay. generally speaking, that, that's what a non-authoritative answer is. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And you can, so, you can look at this stuff. If you go, um, I think if you go uh, dig-t space ns macobserver.com, you'll start seeing... The, you can see the authoritative uh, servers for, for Mac Observer. This is all in the terminal. And then if you go, I'm trying to figure out how. Yeah. So if you go to, <clears throat> pardon me, if you go to dig uh, space, if you just type dig space www.macobserver.com, you will see a listing in the answer section. You'll see the question section. And then you'll see the answer section where it lists www.macobserver.com followed by a number, followed by in and then a and then an IP address, and that IP address is 64.131.67.63. That, that's the IP address of the front door of MacObserver.com. Um, the number that I skipped over is the number of seconds until your computer will look this up again. Um, and so mine is currently at 3,243 seconds, which is just shy of an hour. And my computer is going to trust that this information that it has, this IP address that I just read to you, is okay. And it's not going to go and look that up again 
until the timer expires. And this is what keeps DNS servers from, you know, being cratered and all this extra traffic from around because, and I get to set, well, we as the, 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 the people that manage the DNS server, I get to set that Mac observers IP uh, will last in your cache for at least an hour. Uh, and then you have to look it up again. And I probably should, should increase that, but you know, we've, we made enough changes with servers and security and all that stuff over the summer that I brought it down to an hour just in case we needed to make a change again, it would propagate uh, fairly quickly, but you could increase that to you to a week. If you, if you know that you're not going to be making any changes and then, and then if you feel like you are, you just bring it back down to, you know, an hour again and within a week, now everybody's on the hour thing. But the problem is when my computer gets to the end of that hour, it says, okay, I have to go look this up again. And that's when it starts going up the chain um, and looking. That makes sense. Yeah. It's time to live is what that's called. So Brian Monroe in the chat room. Thank you. TTL is what that's called. And it's got time to live. And so I have 30, whatever, 3,100 seconds. Cause I've been rambling for a little while now. So. now. This is weird. I don't know why this is happening or not happening. So, so the old command to do this from the terminal. So, so the old and busted is NS lookup. And if you, there's nothing terminal, busted type, about NS lookup. Dig will well, just give basic, you more information. It's very basic. Yeah. 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 So if you type NS lookup and you type a name, It'll give you the IP address. Um, dig, yeah, dig goes away into detail. The thing I'm confusing me, Dave, is on my current machine here, when I type dig, it sits there for a while and it says no servers can be reached. But I know that's a lie because I'm able to look up stuff in my web browser. So I'm wondering why dig is not working from the terminal. Hmm. Just typing dig, you mean? Well, at least on my other machine, just typing dig gives me a whole bunch of statistics. Yeah. Well, it shows you the root servers is what it does. If you just type dig return, it doesn't yeah. do a lookup. The yeah. The thing is on my mini, you know, I should stop doing this, but uh, no, but on my mini, if I type dig at the terminal, it'll sit there and it says, uh, at some point it says connection timed out. No servers could be found. Yeah. could be reached, which I know is a lie because I know I'm getting to name servers. I just wonder why dig is having a problem. Um, so type on, on your Mac, type more space slash Etsy slash resolve dot conf. And, and it's so it's slash etc slash r e s o l v dot c o n f, and that should that should etc, and that that'll tell you what your name servers are, uh, in the order that it will check them. Generally, and and so if that is a mismatch between your Mac and your, um. Uh, uh, you know, for between your Mac mini and your MacBook, then, then that might give you an indication <clears throat> pardon, as to why you're having uh, that particular issue. So uh, I don't have any resolve.com file. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's the problem. I'll paste it into the chat room for you just in case you're typing it incorrectly. We'll put it in the show notes too. So you folks can, uh, can follow along at home. It's, uh, it's, it's fun stuff doing all this. I, I, um, you know, it's, it's what we do. Cool. Nope, I definitely, all right, so there's definitely a resolve.conf um, on my MacBook Pro, mm -hmm. and there's definitely not that file on my Mac Mini. I have no idea why. Yeah, that's really weird. It should be there on every single Unix machine in existence, because that's how it, that's how it, no, it does, it's not magic. It just looks at that yeah. file and decides, yeah, yeah. Yeah, more, E-T-C, R-E-S-O-L-V dot conf. Yep. No such file or directory. Huh. Yet the machine seems to be working. Yeah, well, good news. We're at the end of the show. So that's, uh, 
Wow, time flies. So we uh, so we went on a, I think, a relevant tangent there. No, I was I I, I had intended to, to bring us there and then forgot to put it on the agenda. So I was glad that you brought that up because that that was really uh, I think an important thing for people to understand. And and here's the thing: if any of you, if they, if this were to happen again. You can change your DNS to use OpenDNS at any point in time. Uh, I choose to put it in my router so that all the devices on my network uh, use OpenDNS as, as opposed to my ISP, you know, Comcast's DNS. Uh, but you could also just change your Mac to use it directly. Just be aware that um, your Mac might choose if you're on IPv6 that kind of adds a little bit of complexity to this whole thing because it might you might uh, tell it to use the IPv4 addresses from OpenDNS but your Mac might choose to do an IPv6 lookup that grabs your ISP's DNS so it gets it gets very interesting so yeah yeah I'm glad I took your advice uh, for once Dave because I actually ran Namebench a little while ago uh-huh. and it selected Open DNS is the fastest for me, even faster than my ISP, which is kind of a head scratcher. But it says, "Hey, it's faster." Sure. So I actually hard coded it into my router. Yep. To be my my default DNS source. And yep. I'm glad I did. Yeah. 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 Very cool stuff. So yeah, and and, and Brian Monroe accurately points out that Open DNS now has public IPv6 servers as well, so you can plug those into your router if your router will let you. Not every router lets you customize the IPv6 stuff uh, yet. It just depends on the firmware that you have. So your mileage might vary, but should be all. But good. one thing never varies, Dave. And you know what that is? It's the email that you can write to to contact us, and that is feedback at MacGeekGab.com. No, 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 no. That's feedback at MacGeekGab.com, John. Oh, I'm going to check my backup server here, and it says that it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Or you can call us, 224-888-GEEK. You can actually call, text. Uh, I think guess that's it. You can call or text us there. Uh, John, geek is? 433. Five. That is correct. I want to thank uh, Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. I would like to thank all of our sponsors. Of course, uh, the two that were in this show, sponsors for this week, Harry's at Harry's dot com. Coupon code MGG gets you uh, free post shape bomb added to your free trial set and uh, fat cat software at fatcatsoftware.com slash MGG where coupon code MGG saves you 20% on the power photos bundle. In addition to those, of course, our sponsors like gazelle at gazelle.com smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek otherworld computing at MacSales.com, barebones software at barebones.com and Casper Casper.com slash MGG, where MGG saves you 50 bucks off a great mattress. Thanks to all of them. Thanks to you so much for listening, for sending in your questions, all of that. It's been a fun show. Hopefully, all the information made it to you this week. And hopefully, you don't get caught. Made up.